welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast, and I'm glad you're with me. I'd suffer with lateral epicondylitis if you gave me the elbow and told me you missed this week's show. Your partnerships with FGWs, first-generation wealth creators, have different values and mindsets than those who inherited their wealth, and FGWs far outnumber the inheritors. Esther Choi's research will help you understand these folks and how to build valuable relationships with them. She's president of Leadership Story Lab. On Tony's Take Two, in praise of donors like my dad, we're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. It's a pleasure to welcome to Nonprofit Radio, Esther Choi. She is president and chief story facilitator at Leadership Story Lab, teaching storytelling to institutional and individual clients who are searching for more meaningful ways to connect with their audiences. She's a contributor for Forbes Leadership Strategy Group, and you may have seen her quoted in leading media outlets like the New York Times and entrepreneur.com. Her practice is at Leader Story Lab and leadershipstorylab.com. Esther Choi, welcome to Nonprofit Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Welcome. Um, you, you, have, uh, you have some new research out that we need, to, uh, we need to talk about, transforming partnerships with major donors. What are, uh, let's, let's just jump right in and why don't you explain what FGW folks are and uh, tell us a little about your, the research that you did with these FGW folks. <laughs> FGW folks. Well, I uh, recently published this uh, research report um, and lucky enough to have a really, really uh, good exposure, such as the one you mentioned in the New York Times. Yeah. And uh, there are a lot of surprises about uh, the folks that we generally in the broader society just just overly sort of broad and call them the rich people or the wealthy folks or the high net worth individual or the ultra high net worth individuals as if they all belonged in this monolithic group that they all think, act, believe in the same way. And so I got curious about them after I've uh, taught uh, in this major gift strategy program at Kellogg for a while, wondering why are these people so hard to get? What, uh, because so many nonprofits are doing amazing and moving and important and urgent work that no one else is doing. So why is it so hard to reach them? So I, uh, Duck further in, uh, did a lot of, uh, uh, homework and I interviewed 20 very, um, they were ultra high net worth folks. And I just asked them questions about how did they get to your, their wealth? What is it like? Um, are there any downsides to wealth, having wealth and so on and so forth and focusing on philanthropy? Um, so this report, I can talk about any one number of ways. So you tell me, what do you, what do you want to most learn about these first generation wealth creators? Well, let's uh, let's start with how big a proportion they are of the of the wealthy. 
Wow. I am glad you start. That's the starting point. Um, that's one of the biggest surprises that I've learned because they are at least 68% of the, 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 this massive group that we call wealthy ultra high net worth. They are uh, at least 68% of them earn their wealth instead of inherited. Yeah. Now that's a big dis, big uh, difference between inherited wealth versus earned wealth. And that means they've traveled a entire social economic class that they did not grow up with. And so some of them, um, very few of them really make the majority of their wealth in their um, 30s or even 40s. Most of them are in their 50s and 60s. So we're talking about full-on grown adults with children and maybe even grandchildren by the time they become um, this wealthy. So it's a very interesting transformation of your life, your community, your social circles, the things that you worry about or not worry about all happen around starting from the point of 50s and 60s. All right, so, so there are at least two-thirds, maybe even a little more than two-thirds of all the, all the wealthy folks, the way we would describe, as you're saying, high net worth, ultra high net worth. These are, these are two-thirds of those folks. Correct, at least. At least. Well, and more, it's more. actually... You said 68%. I'm just rounding yeah, two-thirds. But. 68%. I, I picked a most conservative number, but I've read elsewhere to, and put that to at, um, somewhere 80. 80%. Okay. All right. 80%. And, so, and, and everybody you interviewed is first-generation wealth. That's, that's where your research was Correct. on those folks. Okay. Correct. Yeah, so let's get to know them a little bit. Um, your research has uh, a, a nice chart. Um, I like, I like pictures. Uh, the first thing I look for in books is pictures, uh, simple, simple mind. <laughs> Me too. you're, uh, you're burdened with a, the host with a simple mind. Um, but you do have these, these pillars of wealth generation. That, so let's describe these folks. Not, not, not all three. I mean, people are just going to have to get the research. You know, I don't, I'm not going to quiz you. I'm not quizzing you on block number four in line three on the, no, we're not doing that. We're not, I don't want to go like word by word because people got to get the research, which, which is at leadershipstorylab.com. Right, correct. Okay, correct. That's so the website gotta, you, you can download. Yeah, there's an executive summary, and you can download the full report as well. Right. So leadershipstorylab.com for the full thing, for the full, for the full study. Um, but let's get to know these folks a little bit. These these first generation wealth creators. Um, you you start by saying they're they're understated. They're they're maybe even humble. Are yeah. they are they are they to the point of being humble yeah. and modest? humble and modest and they have a hard time they have a hard time with the with the word wealthy mm. they understand the size of their assets um they understand um what they are um capable of affording which is basically anything <laughs> but they have a hard time with the label uh wealthy yeah. and um they oftentimes think of and regard and never really left their middle class roots and that's majority of them come from very middle class. You know, they don't want to be flashy, nor do they enjoy flashy things that um, attract attention. So, um, you know, make no mistake, they are uh, a part of things that are very um, 
you know, shiny and, and sophisticated and, and, and high quality, but it's not who they are inside. So that's one thing to keep in mind is that they are very understated themselves and they often appreciate other people as well as other things that are understated. Yeah. You, you make the point a couple of times of saying that they don't, they don't identify themselves as wealthy, even though they know that they fit into that category. Correct. Okay. Um, so you sat down and you, you met these folks, you, well, maybe not face to face, but you, you spoke with these people or, or couples or how did, how did that all work? It's interesting. Yeah. So I did all the interviews, uh, with, in partnership with a research firm and it's all done virtually because it was done in 2020. Um, there was one noted exception, um, where I was invited to her home, uh, and, uh, I, met all her kids and her husbands and, you know, it's just like the whole family in the background. And it's kind of funny to talk about her family while her family was around, but for the most part, it was done um, through zoom uh, one through calls. And then um, there were four people. So two couples, um, I interviewed them at the same time together and uh, the length just got doubled. Um, you know, it's usually 50, 50 minutes to an hour. And with a couple, um, we talk for over an hour and a half. All right. All right. Um, how do you, how, I'm interested in some of the details. How, how do you reach out to these folks? How do you, how do you get their attention? It's really hard. So the first thing we mentioned um, in one of the four pillars is they're understated, right? Mm -hmm. They don't identify with the word wealthy. They certainly don't make big advertisement to the world that they are wealthy. And so to find them and to get them to agree to speak on record, although it's anonymous, um, and to get them to open up and talk about uh, money and wealth, it's mm. really hard. So I have to rely on a, f a couple of key relationships. Um, one is through one of my alma mater, um, Texas A&M University, and my friend and colleague, uh, the CEO of Texas A&M Foundation, helped me recruit a few, quite a few of these um, interviewees. Uh, my business partner, who also happens to be a um, uh, trustee at the University of Cincinnati, Cincinnati Foundations, and um, through a couple of my own uh, resources, as well as my uh, research firms. So 20 uh, for qualitative studies is, you know, sufficient. It's definitely not a lot. 20 people doesn't sound like a lot, but 20 of these type of people and get them to talk about very sensitive topic um, mm. was, uh, it took quite a bit just to get them to agree to talk to me. Yeah. Yeah. Go Aggies. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, absolutely. Um, and, and what was the median income for these 20 folks or families? So um, at this point, I don't think their income is very meaningful any, anymore. So where I am uh, by median, I would refer to their, um, uh, their, their net worth. So the net worth, the median range is uh, 50 to 80 million. Mm -hmm. um, although um, the low, I would put it in the low teens, the highs, I would put them in uh, 150. 
Okay. So just give you give you give uh, our listeners a, a sense as well of what we're talking about, like by. Well, you know, millions is like a lot of zeros. You know, at some point, it's just like I, my mind can't keep them all in in one place. Um, according to the Fed in 2020, um, the top one percent of the U.S. Um, folks have 11 million. So these are all, um, uh, you know, sort of the top one percenter. Yeah, and above the um, if for the one percent, even. Right, so right. This is like mid-teens to fifty or so was the was roughly the the median net worth. Exactly, okay. exactly. But then, yeah. if you think about the one percent of three hundred million people in the U.S., that's three million three million people, and that is about the size. If you put them all in one city, all in one location. They're just below New York City, just below New York, uh, just below Los Angeles, but just above the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So three million people, that's a lot of people. Okay. And and you estimate conservatively that of those three million, 68% uh, are first generation. They earn Correct. their wealth versus inherited. Okay. Correct. Okay. All right. So let's, let's go back and get to know these folks a little bit. Um, um, they're entrepreneurial, no, no surprise, but tell us what, what does that mean for the way they think about themselves and the way they might think about uh, their philanthropy? Yeah. So in the most literal sense, they are, were entrepreneurs. That's how they created, most of them created their wealth. And with a few, um, less than 20% of them uh, had very lucrative corporate careers. Mm-hmm. And, Entrepreneurial also means that it's a mindset. It's the lenses in which they apply all things through. Um, so it could be the way um, that they would like their children or grandchildren to approach, um, you know, if I wanted to study abroad even um, and, you know, I need additional funding. Well, how much you think about it as what untapped opportunities might there be out there for you in the country that you want to study, but mm-hmm. is not currently fully leveraged. Um, but entrepreneurial could also means to, as they think about nonprofit, as they really think about how they want to leave their social impact and how they want to fully make sure that their philanthropic dollar is put to good use that also applied and um, compatible with their middle-class values. So uh, it's, 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 it's up and downside, right? Um, sometimes something just can't be measured. Sometimes nonprofits are run by people who are philanthropically minded and socially minded, and they don't necessarily have the same sort of business acumen as as, as well as um, fear competitiveness um, that these donors tend to have and embody. And so the the downside of having that entrepreneurial mindset is that sometimes it creates um, clashes and if you know at the very least disagreements on is this really the best use of the the the, the precious dollars that your organizations have mm. um, sometimes there's no straight black and white answer yes and no um, so um, that's what I mean by entrepreneurial and, and and what else what what 
What comes next in those four pillars? So the third is free. And I truly, it seems like a very simple, no nonsense. And and, and we're like, oh, we live in a free society. Uh, but I think the truth of the matter is that a lot of people aren't not free. They're not free to pursue whatever they want. They are under certain professional career obligations or financial pressures. Or don't and feel they, they have a lot, of, a lot of options. Yeah, exactly. And that's why um, a lot of career counselors ask uh, mid to even late career folks, you know, what would you do if money is not an issue, right? Uh, I've heard that questions asked a lot in career counseling because a lot of people are under that uh, pressure, but these FGWs, they are not. And for them, it's oftentimes for the first time is wow, now it's not a theoretical question anymore. Mm. I really don't have to worry about money. Okay, so now what? What do we do? And so um, a lot of them pursue experiences. A lot of them want the same thing for their children and grandchildren. Um, they uh, pursued third, fourth, fifth careers that they've always are interested, intrigued by, know that they're not very good mm. at, and know that they probably may not, may or may not be able to make a ton of money with, um, but they pursue it anyway. So it's that sense of freedom um, that I think a lot of people, as long as they have to still worry about saving for retirement, saving for uh, making sure you can pay your mortgage and things like that, it's it's really hard to wrap your mind about. And then these folks are just sort of fully embracing. They want their children to understand that having a wealth of options doesn't just come. It comes from hard work and, and devotion, which is what they devoted their decades to. So they, they, they want their children to understand that that, does, that just doesn't just happen for everyone. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up children. Um, across all 20 of them, even though the ages ranges from late 40s to a few 80s, um, they all worry about their kids, even though their kids have all grown up, or they have worry about their kids, or have regrets about uh, the way that they raise, the ways that they pass on their assets uh, to their kids. And the the funny thing is that they did not tell me, "Oh, I have so and so. I really can confide in, or I know these uh, uh, professional resources." Uh, that I can go to. And um, all of them are just kind of like, I hope I'm doing the right thing. In fact, I know I haven't done the right thing. But then talking to peers, surprisingly, was not an option across any of them. And so although they're free, but this taboo topic of money and wealth have prevented them from really searching for the right answers at the time when decisions had to be made. So children, it's a constant universal worries, especially for people with wealth. Um, We've seen from studies after studies that, for example, substance abuse tend to affect um, children from families with means disproportionately higher than those who are not from uh, family mm. with means. I, w- I wonder if there's some tension for them because 
they're not comfortable talking to those who inherited their wealth or, or even just other wealthy people because they don't they don't identify that way. But then they're not comfortable talking to those folks that they knew when they were struggling in their careers and before their their great success, their great financial success. We qualify that because success can take lots of diff- have lots of different levels to it. But before their great financial success, because they 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 like they don't want to. They don't want to appear uh, overbearing to their non-wealthy friends who they know from high school and college and, you know, maybe professional school or, you know, whatever. Uh, so they're, they like caught in the middle. Like they don't, yeah, so they don't have yeah. valuable personal relationships to, to leverage and count on in, in, in times like when they're questioning what, what to do with children and, you know, sort of existential questions like that. Yeah, so this is another downside of being entrepreneurial. Um, another way to call someone very entrepreneurial is what, you know, he's he has a can-do spirit. She has a can-do spirit. So if you can do, you can do it yourself. You don't need to count on other people to help you. You can pull yourself up by the bootstrap. So uh, that's one. And two is, again, the the subject of wealth, it tends to be taboo. Um, in fact, the Brookings Institute uh, economist um, Isabel Sawhill made this really apt observation. And she said that people rather talked about sex than money mm. and money than class. So first-generation wealth creators have travel across classes, and so that makes it really hard for them to say, you know, I don't know what's the right way. If we do, if we travel, is it wrong for us to buy business class or first class? And what are your middle class friends going to say? Oh, poor Tony, poor Esther, you're struggling with questions like, should you travel in business versus first class? Yeah. And it, it's not something that a lot of people first of all, empathize with, and second of all, have the right context to give sound counsels. Mm -hmm. And what about professional um, coaches and um, counselors and whatnot? I didn't actually uh, cover it in a report. I chose to exclude it and just in in favor of focusing on nonprofit and fundraising. But their experience with uh, wealth management advisors are very mixed because oh, it's an industry that has a lot of conflict of interest. There are some little, really, right, really let good. In, let us in on something that, uh, that didn't make the report. This is great. <laughs> Not proper radio. You got to let us in on the, on the, on the backstory. What, uh, say a little more about these the trouble they've had, the mixed results, mixed results. I'm sure some have been, some results were fine and some relationships are fine, but say a little more about uh, what didn't make the final report there. Um, I cut a whole section off just because I think it, it might be detrimental to getting people to read it when it's beyond a certain length. So this whole section that I cut off was on um, how they view advisors um counselors and and things like that. And indeed, you know, uh, two words to describe the entire section is that it's very mixed. Um, Some um, have great experience. Some on the other end of the extreme is um, they thought the people they interacted with is just uh, 
the advice weren't very good or too obvious, or that again, they can do it themselves. Why do I need to pay you so much money to mm-hmm. tell me something I know already? And, um, and, and by the way, that is somewhat parallel to their experience with uh, fundraisers. So I don't want to just put the hammer on um, wealth advisors and, and, and um, tax advisors and whatnot, um, because this idea that, oh, we know you're wealthy, we know what you can do with your money, either for the benefit of yourself as well as for me or my organizations, that really changed the dynamic of the conversations as well as the services, how services rendered and this to their relative to their expectations. Um, So that's why it's not very helpful. I think just to come off and, um, list a bunch of things that they're not happy with without being able to say what would be helpful. So I just removed the whole section and also in favor of keeping it a readable length. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. You remember them. You've been hearing about them. The Biden tax plan, the infrastructure plan, immigration. Is there anything in there, in these continuing conversations that you'd like to be heard on? Anything in there impacting your work? Anything in there that you're expert on and you need to be heard? You want to be a trusted source on something that's under constant conversation and it's in the press? Turn 2 has the relationships that can make that happen. They are a trusted source by lots of media outlets. They can get you heard on the subjects that you know best and that you're expert on. Let them use their relationships to help you. Because your story is their mission. Turn-2.co It's time for Tony's Take Two. In praise of donors like my dad. My dad is 88 years old. And he gives to dozens of nonprofits a month. I have seen the checks that he writes. Now, 88 years old. So, you know, he's not doing online giving. He's not doing online bill paying. He writes checks. For those of you not acquainted with checks, they come with check registers. That's a little booklet that you can write all your checks in so you can reconcile month after month, right? It's an old process, but for an 88-year-old, it's the way it gets done. He's outgrown check registers. He writes so many checks to charities each month that he just keeps a running list on sheets of paper. And there are so many check entries on each sheet that the sheets are curling up a little bit. <laughs> when a sheet is complete, it's, it, it, it's, it's almost like parchment. It's curled up a little bit because there's three columns of checks in, on each page. I don't mean each check takes up three columns. I mean, there are three columns of checks on an eight and a half by 11 page. He's got, a, he's got the check number, uh, uh, his own abbreviation of the name of the charity, and then, the amount. And, uh, oh, he's got the date. He's got the date in there too. 
And so that's how he reconciles. Uh, so yeah, dozens of checks to charities per month. That, you know, that's a kind of giving that I only am experienced with through him because I do planned giving, which is on the other end of the spectrum of giving. Um, he certainly doesn't consider himself a philanthropist, but he's very, very supportive of charities. And, and how does he choose the ones? Uh, well, first of all, they find him. I don't know how the list exchanges or sales work, but charities come to him. So they send him U.S. mail. He's got no email. He's got no cell phone. Um, we'll get to vetting in a second. So charities write to him and he reads the materials. He scrutinizes. He decides whether he thinks the work is merits his giving and something that he wants to give to, something he's interested in. And then he goes to the Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance report on charities. And why does he choose that one? Because it's in print. There's no going online to Charity Navigator or any other rating service uh, that, that that's online. He goes to the print, the booklet. So Better Business Bureau. And if he likes your work and you're listed in the Better Business Bureau giving booklet rated well in there, then he writes a check. And you probably, these charities are writing to him again a a month later, and there's a good chance he's writing a check a month later, etc. It's a very uh, iterative process. There's no real learning that goes on. Uh, I can't say there's a feedback and uh, improvement part to the iterations, but... uh, the cycle continues. You know, and we need people like that. These small donors, that's, uh, you know, some people prefer to say modest donors. I'm not commenting on my dad's or anyone else's character when I say small donors. It doesn't mean there was, he's a small person. It just He gives small gifts. So I avoid the euphemism. I just say he's a small donor. We need small donors like this. You know, they, um, he's loyal. Once you, once you meet his threshold and it's not very high, it's what I described, then you've got him for a long time. Don't try to upgrade him though. He's, he's not going to become a major donor and he's not going to put you in his will. I'll see to that. That part, I'll, forget the planned gift. That's not happening. No, but he's not, he doesn't think that way. He's never gone deeper with any charity that he gives to, the way I'm describing. We need folks like that. We need the uh, 10, 15, $20 donors. And in some respects, he's a recurring donor. I mean, he is a recurring donor. He's just, he's not part of your monthly uh, recurring program that's set up uh, automatic, you know, the automatic debits uh, or credits. Um, he's not, he's not one of those, but uh, he's, he's a recurring donor. So in praise of donors like my dad, it's very interesting to watch him. We've talked about his process. Yeah, we need folks like that. 
and here we are talking about uh, future um, or, or wealthy wealthy folks. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah, first generation wealth. Here we are talking about, and um, my dad is at the uh, well. These these folks, I would put plan giving at the far end of the spectrum. So these folks are near there, uh, but my dad's at the on the left side of the spectrum. We need them all. We need all these donors. That is Tony's take two. We've got Buku buttloads more time for your partnership with FGWs. All right. Finally, these folks are lone rangers. What does that mean? <laughs> um, we touch upon it a little bit where we, um, you know, they are part of this new class of wealth. They're like immigrants in some way. By the way, I really wanted to recommend a few books, uh, not just mine, um, that really helped me round out my understanding. So yeah, this please. whole idea of um, think of first-generation wealth creators as immigrants. Um, they have migrated from uh, a different class altogether and enter into this world where the beliefs, um, the values, and oftentimes even language um, are foreign to them. And although it's great, this is paradise, um, they often find that there are uh, tricky conditions. Some even would say um, because their native-born children and grandchildren um, don't understand the privilege, privileges that they were born and, and then have gotten accustomed to. Um, and the, the cliche or the adage or however you want to, want, to, want to call it, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, rice patties to rice patties, wealth does not last past three generations. And they know that. And so when you think about this special land of paradise, again, um, by the way, this is a, a th I learned it through the book called um, uh, Strangers in Paradise by James Grutman. Um, their native born children and not uh, grandchildren, statistically speaking, will be deported back to harsher land where the first generation have really? migrated from. Huh. And um, and here's the kick, Tony. I I just I, I just found it fascinating, and this is why I can talk about this, you know, forever and ever. Mismanagement of their wealth, taxes, and inflations, and bad investments. All of those are more of and just the natural delusions from you know the couple to children to grandchildren, right? All of those reasons are reasons for wealth not being able to last past three generations. But you will probably, I've never found any one cases or example or family where the story basically is, well, grandpa and grandma gave it all away to charity and left nothing to us. That's why we're poor again. You know, yeah. that just doesn't happen. <laughs> and so what my, I, I think what, I really want to focus on, I think, the opportunities for nonprofit is that what might there be a um, different way to think about the conversations that you ha have with these donors where you help them solve a problem or maybe many problems, and then you also help yourself 
um, solve a problem. By the way, I'm getting like way, way, way. This is a problem when you, we have no script. I'm getting like way away from the Lone Ranger questions. That's okay. Um, I'm going to bring I'm, you back, but that's all right. I, but not, I think no, I'm getting to the whole script, thing. Nonprofit radio. No, no. I, so you're not, you're, what you're saying is still valuable. Don't, don't, don't second guess yourself. It's okay. What, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that it's, Lonely to be first generation. It can be lonely to be a first generation immigrant, mm-hmm. except that most immigrants have somehow found other immigrants, and they talk, they share notes, they commiserate, they help each other out. But um, first generation wealth creators are particular type of immigrants, where for all the reasons that we've talked about, they don't actively look for help, nor was real quality help um, readily available. Okay, cool. Interesting. Really fascinating analogy, uh, analogizing them to, to immigrants. Um, did you did you put any of them together uh, uh, since you met 20 of them and got to know them? So these folks that are uh, feeling lone, uh, feeling lone, lo- I don't know, lonely. I'm, I'm just using a word. I'm not saying they're lonely in their lives. Maybe they are, but they're lone rangers. Did you, did you uh, put any of these folks together and say, look, you know, I met, I met so-and-so like two, two or three weeks ago. And she was saying the same thing that you're saying, you know, why don't the two of you talk or would you be interested? You know, did you put any folks together to help them uh, commiserate at least, or maybe even help <laughs> each, maybe at best help each other. I, I, I think I would, I would if I were asked. But with these twenty, because of the promise of confidentiality, um, I, I don't share their names or contacts with anyone. Right, but right. Um, I have done uh, webinars since then where I was asked. So how do you find these people? <laughs> Oh, and then right. if if they ask me, then I will help. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm like a connector. So I was thinking, you know, if I could get her permission, would you like to talk to her? Because the two of you are saying things that are really identical and maybe together you could help each other. Okay. As well as having very similar questions. And this is where I was getting at the opportunity part um, because they've asked questions like, how much and when should I pass my asset to my kids and grandkids? Mm. It's dealt with by um, with wealth advisors on a very case by case basis, and I think that should be that's the way it should be done. But what's really sorely missing is, well, how do other families handle this? Right to your questions of, well, there are other people like me. What do they do? because they're in my boat. Um, So as well as questions like, how do I get in sync with my spouse? Um, And then they also have questions on like, how do you truly vet um, a non, a a non-for-profit, you know, and how do you help not my, you know, the nonprofits that you support uh, become more efficient. And they are aware that not coming off as, because I'm a donor, I give money and, um, you should do what I tell you to do, um, things like that, you know, that productive relationship with nonprofits. Mm-hmm. So there are endless questions like this that they can talk about, not just commiserate, although commiserating is, is great too. All right. I, don't know, I think you could be a connector, a major connector. Um, and I notice uh, I'll leave that there. That's, uh, <laughs> but you know, the title of your research is transforming partnerships with major donors. So, so all right, let's, 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 
transition to some of those opportunities. You talked about problem solving that could be mutually beneficial. How, do, how would a fundraiser CEO uh, approach someone with that, with, with that kind of opportunity? Yeah, yeah. So I want to break it down to um, three steps. Um, three I want to break one, two, three. Okay, one, two, three. three step, yeah. you got a three-step process. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay, you can call it a three-step process, but it's but you just did. You said three. You got- <laughs> I didn't invent it. You made it up. You said, you three steps. Okay. I think the first thing is you have to really think about the questions you ask them, and uh, oftentimes how curious, how respectful, how informed you are, are all sussed out by the kind of questions you asked. Are your questions mostly really at the end of the day self-serving? Um, or are you only focusing on a very narrow aspects of the donors? Um, or are you really broadly interested in problem solving? Now, here's another thing that entrepreneurs like to do. They like to solve problems. And oftentimes they take the same uh, mindset towards nonprofit. Am I really giving to an organizations that are going to solve real major problems in a sustainable, uh, sustainable way? Um, so that's the first thing is, is the questions that you ask. And then two is reading once you really find out about uh, uh you know, what you could learn from the donors is then really being able to pair what your nonprofits have to offer and that structure it in a way as well as, well as frame it in a way that uh, fits the mindset of, um, well, oftentimes these folks are very busy. They know they need to do something, but they're very busy. So, um, how is it, uh, how do you make it easy for them, in other words? And then um, the last thing I would say is um, it would, um, how do you acknowledge them, right? Um, it sounds really obvious, right? You know, there's stewardship program, there are people who are involved in uh, thanking donors. But what I've found is that people, found, uh, people thought there's not enough thank you or there's too much thank yous and they're not thanked through the right medium. And so uh, we're not talking about, you know, $10, $20 where there are maybe hundreds and thousands of them and you can't manage them one by one and customize it. But with major donors, it's absolutely worth it to make sure that it's customized to their preference and needs. So questions, the way that you frame as well as the acknowledgement part. And the, the acknowledgement or the stewardship is interesting. Um, you say somewhere that uh, the, the, they, these folks have a hard time understanding uh, the name on a building, you know, why that, why people find that appealing, why some donors find that appealing so, so a, a brick and mortar in fundraising, you know, a brick and mortar recognition would not necessarily be appealing to them. But, but finding out what is appealing comes from, you know, maybe this this three steps is sort of iterative, right? I mean, if you're starting to get near a, near something promising, you want to you want to be finding out too about what they would like in terms of 
acknowledgement. Yeah, yeah. How, how, how would you like to be recognized? What's important to you? So I have um, a friend of mine who uh, advised nonprofits with operations like this. And um, she helped one of them. She said, you know what? Why don't you just, why don't you just ask? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he did. He created a survey through SurveyMonkey and you know they they have more than a handful so they can't just call them up and ask them individually. So um he created a a, a survey and he got over 70% response rate mm-hmm. which is really really good right if you were for for survey and um so the the survey basically centered around three three things. Um, how would you like to be thanked? How often would you like to be thanked? And through which mediums do you most prefer to be thanked? And it's not only do they have really good eva- uh, uh, feedback, but it's such a positive gesture from the nonprofit to the donor saying, hey, we actually admit we don't know but we care and we should, we know what we don't know and we care. And now we really would like to learn more from our donors. And that truly is a practical, helpful, informative donor centric step to take. And by the way, her name is uh, Lisa Greer. She also has a incredibly helpful book called philanthropy um, revolutions. So it's a mix of, um, it's a mix of memoir. It's a mix of uh, research because she told her story, but she also has interviewed uh, uh, over a hundred uh, principal gift level donors, and um, and uh, and the last mix of how tos. So uh, it's super helpful. How does Lisa spell her last name? G R E E R. Lisa Greer. What else? What else can you tell us, Esther? Uh, that. Uh, in terms of approaching these folks, um, how, how might you get, uh, I have a question for, I have a little more specific question. How might you get their attention? Ooh, yeah, I know. Um, getting the first meeting, yeah. it's like 50 or 60, or I don't know, 70% of the work, just being able to get in the call. Um, I, I think everything matters in, the smallest amount of space, which is if you have no other ways to reach them, what do most people do? Emails. And so make sure that your subject line is the most attention grabbing as well as intriguing possible um, way to, to get people's attention. By the way, I have a I don't know if I can memorize uh, the 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 four persona um, off the top of my head. Oh, actually I do. I have it right in front of me. Um, <laughs> my uh, colleague, Scott Mordell, um, he is the longest serving CEO of YPO Global, Young Presidents Organizations. So mm-hmm. these are a lot of the highly concentrated um, first generation wealth. Um, around the world, 30,000 of them are um, around the world. Um, he actually put the their philanthropic tendencies in four ways. Um, the idealist is the first one. Those are the ones that who want to make a true impact, a long-lasting impact, solve societal problem. Another one is called the legacy leader. 
those are the one who really loves to leave, make sure their name lasts generations and generations that they are getting credit for the big impact that they made. Mm -hmm. The third one is called the model citizens. And those are the ones that look around and understand what is the highest and highest of highest level of service. And they want to be there. And that philanthropic effort reflects that. And then the fourth one is called the busy bigwig. That's the ones who are busy extremely busy and yet they know they should do something, but they don't know what and how. And so back to your questions of how do you get their attention? I think you should first by starting with having a point of view of, of these four possibilities, which one is this person most likely going to be? And then once you have a persona in mind, then it's a lot easier for you to craft a message with a subject line that is most intriguing and attention-grabbing for you. I, I get, despite what my clients and friends and colleagues know about me, I still get these extremely bland and generic um, email messages that are, you know, if you just replace the logo of the nonprofits, I would fit anybody yeah. at all. And so uh, that would be the first thing I think about is have a persona in mind. Even if you're wrong, it's okay. Even if you're wrong, at least you have a point of view about that person. But the upside is that even if you're not 100% right, just having the personal, that persona is going to help you speak to that person as if you know a lot about them already. Are you only really only going to get to them through an introduction or like somebody has to give you their email or, I mean, there's not a directory of first generation wealth creators. Is there now? I know yours was, I, I obviously yours was anonymous, but like, is there a, is, I don't know. Is there a directory or something that's, that simple? That's a, I don't know. Is that's there? a really interesting question. Oh, it's basic. Um, it's basic, yeah. basic is what I major in, basically. That's, in that's basic. a really, really interesting question. I love the way you think about things, Tony. Um, not only is, isn't is there one, um, they really know how to, how to hide their wealth. Yeah. You know, they believe in stealth wealth, not only because of the way they live their lives, but they know how to put things in, all things in trust. And so everything comes through a different name. And... Um, Data can help. Um, the right kind of data can, uh, data enriching as well as data matching. Um, I don't know a ton about it, but I know enough because there's another company that I co-founded that like, that's all we do. Because in the old ways, how do you get names of donors? Well, right? you, you ask your board. You ask who did. Yeah, that, that, well, that's how you start. That's how a small organization starts. But, um, but then now, I mean, now we have social media, and you can have a campaign and see who gives to that, and then you then you do some research on those folks to see who who might be uh, have the capacity to do more, and then you expand your relationship even with the others who may not have capacity but have willingness. But, but see, I, I think there's a lot in your current database that is not being fully utilized. Well, that may be for some folks. Yeah. And uh, well, because we're talking about stealth wealth. I mean, yeah, 
that's that's certainly possible. I mean, these these folks live modest live modest means. I mean, or, um, or at least outward. Um, I mean, what twenty years ago there was the book the, the Millionaire Next Door. I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about. This is the, the, there are more zeros now, and there are more of them, and we're we're in a more financially mobile society now than we were twenty years ago, but. The, the concept is the same, that there are these hidden families of wealth that, uh, that are, may very well be in your database. You know, then it was the, the millionaire next door. Now it, the millionaire in your, it's the ultra high net worth in your database. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you, you know, go back to the questions, the way that you ask questions of when you have an opportunity to talk to a donor directly, as well as the way that you ask questions about your databases um, that can really help you look for hidden millionaires, billionaires right in front of you, right in front of your eyes. I wouldn't be surprised that there are already, uh, but you aren't, you're, you're not even aware that you're pretty close. When Lisa and I, um, because of our share passion about this topic, and she's really doing it full time, I'm doing this. This is because this is my baby. Uh, you know, the first time she uh, wanted to make a principal gift. Um, to um, her local hospital, um, she uh, budgeted for $2 million for um, her, her hospital. And it took the hospital seven months to pay attention to her. And $2 million isn't a small amount for that hospital. It is definitely a major amount. Part of that but, may be latent, uh, uh, unconscious uh, sexism. I've I've heard this from women. I do planned giving fundraising, but I've heard this many times from women just ignored when they they made explicit overtures, not just dr- subtle hints, but explicit overtures. You know, I want to do this. I want to remember the organization in my estate plan, and you know, ignored, repeatedly ignored. Yeah. So, unfortunately, what you're describing with your friend Lisa is, uh, I, I don't think it's so uncommon. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's. I think there's some. I think there's just. Unconscious latent sexual, uh, um, not sexuality, uh, sexism bias. in yeah. Uh, yeah in, uh, in 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 fundraising. It's and money is left on the table as a result. I mean, aside from the morality of the uh, of the of that that misunderstanding. That yeah yeah. So so it's I, I haven't seen quantitative research on just how frequently that happened. But that's Lisa's from her research, from her personal yeah. experience, from your experience. So I think there are actually plenty of money within reach of nonprofits that they probably have missed, but they didn't know they have. We're going to leave it there. <laughs> it's perfect. No, you have opportunities. And uh, I know that our conversation has uh, stimulated thinking about how to find these folks and how to transform your partnership with them. Esther Choi, the, the research is Transforming Partnerships with Major Donors. I'll give the full title. Aligning the key values of first-generation wealth creators and fundraisers in the age of winner-takes-all. You'll get the research at leadershipstorylab.com. That's where Esther's company is, Leadership Story Lab, and also at Leader Story Lab. Esther Choi, I want to thank you very much. It's terrific. Thank, thank you. This is such an invigorating conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
Thank, and thanks for saying you were glad that I asked a question. You were one of the generous, uh, generous guests. I'm glad you asked that. Oh, I got, I got chills. Thank you, Esther. Next week, overcome your fear of public speaking. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great.